0: Welcome back to Amago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Amago Day because equality and dignity of BIPOC and LGBTQ lives matter. I'm your host, Kendra Arsnow, along with my co-host today, spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle. This week on Amago Gay, we are discussing the importance of boxes. While on our Redefined series, we are creating bigger boxes for a bigger god, but today we're talking about the importance of a box as well as the dangers of deconstruction especially when done in isolation more so we'll be hearing some never before heard pieces of my journey to affirming so stay tuned because this is an episode you do not want to miss and we want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors for today spectrum magazine and sda kinship this month sda kinship has an incredible lineup of educational panels and opportunities for connection so, if you would like to be a member or are just curious about finding LGBTQ communities, please check them out at sdakinship.org. As always, Spectrum Magazine has some of the latest and greatest articles about what is happening in the academic world. So, to keep up with contemporary happenings, please check them out at SpectrumMagazine.org. How are you feeling today? If I sound a little off today, it's because I had three wisdom teeth pulled this week and my jaw feels a little sore, so. We'll be very gentle.
1: We'll thank keep you. an easy pace for you.
0: Thank you. Not too critical of my voice this week, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so something I wanted to talk about is religious deconstruction and one of the Definitions of religious deconstruction is the tearing down of theological presuppositions, meaning presupposed beliefs, in order to reconstruct beliefs under a new paradigm. That new paradigm does not have to be a significant denomination or religion, but often results in a significant change. Now, there are so many challenges to deconstructing, and I'll talk a little bit about my own process and some processes that we're seeing in the world right now, because we don't realize how much of our identity and sense of well-being and meaning in life actually come from the beliefs that we hold. And something you touched on last week was how sometimes psychosis and spirituality are not too differentiated from each other or they live in the same parts of the brain.
1: Well, I will say that I'm very excited to hear a little bit more about your journey and not just, I think we've focused on the herd. We focus on what's helped you kind of find purpose and again, a sense of groundedness, but what that deconstruction looked like Sure. and Where it has landed you? Has there been also some reconstruction?
0: It's so interesting. I want to take this example from this book that I've been reading, Spirituality and Psychosis. And it it gives this example. It says, Alan, a friendless man living in poverty, believed himself to be an unempowered messiah and was waiting to be called forward as the second coming. He attended church each week, positioning himself near the altar so as to receive the genuflections of communicants as worship. He believed that many tourists that filled his town in the summer were pilgrims. In the development of a psychosis, a person's perception of the world can be turned inside out. From a neglected peripheral person, without any power to make an impression on the world, that person suddenly becomes its center. This has been described as the Copernicum Revolution, and is often accompanied by a fragile but extreme certainty so that the person's world has changed to the extent that any correction would mean a collapse of being itself. And so in this sense, this person is using religion to derive grand meaning for themselves, that in actuality, in their real lived life, they are very powerless and marginalized. They're a peripheral person. It's a homeless, friendless person who has created a narrative to give himself meaning. And they quote that says, a meaning-centered approach is central to recovery from psychosis. Personal recovery involves much more than losing symptoms. It involves becoming a person again, regaining a personal life that has some value and meaning. And so religion is at the center of where we derive meaning for ourselves and value We are created in God's image, that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, these are statements of value. Also, that we are amidst a great controversy, and what side are you going to be on, the good and evil and angels fighting in cosmic spaces that you can't see? It's a very grand narrative to be a part of, and to lose that means really a a huge loss of self-identity.
1: Yeah, I, I know we've referenced the whole definition of spirituality here many times and i think i'll continue to reference it because it's just so core to the conversations that we're having spirituality is about a sense of connection connection to self connection to god or some sacred being or nature whatever it is for you and connection to others at the center of it when all these things are healthy and you are feeling connected that's when you can maximize your experience of meaning-making. And whenever you can enhance your experience of meaning-making, whenever you're feeling connected to self, God, and others, and you have meaning and purpose in your life, you simultaneously enhance your coping ability. Right. So I think, A, that speaks to how spirituality is embedded in overall health and well-being, but B, how enhancing one's coping mechanisms is tied to meaning-making and therefore a sense of connection with the world, with self, and with God.
0: I think it's so true, And, and I think that's why often, sometimes on the economic fringes, religion really is a core part to a person's identity because when you have no real power in this world, to cling to a narrative that gives you just incredible meaning, that you are saving souls. I mean, that's an incredible mission to have. And so people take on these projects, whether it's passing out leaflets or going door to door, even if it's not an official pastoral position, that they are in these positions of service because it's a place of deriving so much sense of self from.
1: Yeah. And I think with psychosis, and I'm not an expert, just from the research that I've read and from my personal experience, people invent alternate realities because the one they're in is so unbearable that it's a coping mechanism. And so I think I would differentiate healthy spirituality from maybe toxic spirituality when it's being used to create an alternate reality Because the one That you're living in Is, is too so painful. unbearable And I think At times Religion is a vehicle For connection Yep And it really does Help us feel In tune with Our sense of meaning And purpose And other times We superimpose That narrative On ourselves When we feel Actually very disconnected Yep And when we're wandering And grasping For a sense of meaning And purpose But really not Integrated Integrating
0: that into our lives. It's so true. I think there is an importance of having a box. So starting off with a box. Many of you listening are SDAs, and that's the box that you began with. And in some ways, it helped you make sense of the world. It helped us become participants in society to really understand good and evil and our place and doing moral Things.
1: Yeah. And it gave us a sense of direction. What am I working towards? What is my ultimate purpose?
0: And what's what's the most important things in life that you should be pursuing? So those are things that in and of itself, I can look at that and I say, these are important boxes. And when you're asking somebody to deconstruct and to challenge those beliefs, know, you're asking them to deconstruct something that's so core to themselves, I have a lot of compassion for that because I don't think it's a journey that you can take on your own. It's something that you do have to do in community with other people because it can just get really scary.
1: Not only can it get scary and we do need support, but when people love us and when we are in communities that care for our well-being, they also challenge us. Mm -hmm. And I think my own personal deconstruction of faith, I wouldn't have been able to have gotten To where I am now, had it not been for people who I hold in very high regard and esteem and think they're very intelligent. And most of all, I think they care about me and they cared about my own well being. I remember I was told once that my church was very bigoted and that the people who said homophobic things to me were very bigoted. And I had such a strong reaction to that. I Mm -hmm. felt so protective of my church and the people who created these expectations around who I was supposed to be. Mm. I was more angry towards the person in my community who called that out Mm. than I ever was to the people who put me in such a small, dark closet my whole life. And I think over time, realizing that the person that was kind of pointing these things out in my life, there were many, it wasn't just one person, but Mm. it really forced me to kind of explain these gaps that I was experiencing in layman's terms. Yep. They didn't have the whole buy-in. They didn't have the whole SDA theology to that I could just reference. I really had to explain it to somebody who had no idea. And as I heard myself explaining it, I just felt stupid. No. I've <laughs> I felt like here I am trying to convince somebody that this person is not evil even though it doesn't quite make sense to me, even though I don't have good theology for it. And so yeah. that's when my lens
0: started to shift a little bit. Yeah, I think there is some use to the boxes that helped create Our world, our brain needs structure. I think COVID, I mean, it hit hard even for me because I'm somebody who thrives off of structure. I'm somebody who needs to have expectations, to be at a place at a certain time, to be at work, to be in a community. Those things are really big about really even helping my mental health. And so those who are going to take deconstruction the hardest, or maybe those who are transitioning in their job placement, or even going through school where there's irregular hours, when you're taking that journey on by yourself, and there's not other parts of your life that are structured and helping you to like move on with every day, it's so easy to fall into depression and anxiety. And it's a part of me wants to recommend, grab a good book, grab something that has four walls as far as... A lot of books are going to present a narrative that has values and characters that have arcs and growth. And these are spaces that you can begin to connect with if you really find yourself going down this deconstruction journey. And I've had some dark nights where I am spiraling. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: because it's, you know, like any other grief in your life. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And with religion especially. Oh, yeah.
0: I can just say when I first entered the seminary, I had already begun the process of deconstruction just because I had lived a journey where the theological beliefs were not matching my actual experience. So Uh, this
1: is a good place to start. What caused you or what prompted for you the deconstruction process? Because I think that's what we're wondering. Is this something that's necessary to go through? Is this something that people never go through? So maybe share a little bit of what prompted this deconstruction phase in your life. And it is actually quite surprising that you were going through this phase during seminary. I I think that part's especially intriguing.
0: As I've talked about in previous episodes, I was married and in an abusive relationship and went through a divorce. And a part of that was this person who was really a spiritual mentor in a lot of ways, groomed me. I was 22. This person was much older I was looking for a lot of spiritual direction at that point in my life. I think I was going even maybe through my own, I wouldn't say psychosis, but definitely I was in a deep search at 22 because I just graduated college. I don't know what direction my life is going. I have two degrees, but they're not really practical degrees. There's no channel where I'm going to be getting my job now. And so I think that left me with a lot of questions about what's next and i think i did cling to something that had boxes something that had four walls which was religion something that i knew and this person kind of came in and was the teacher so to speak and i kind of fell into that but the practical workings out of this person's theology that was very conservative very patriarchal created a life for me that was uncomfortable as a woman i i'm more than just submission and obedience I think (laughs) (laughs) surprising. (laughs) There was a lot of financial abuse. There was a period of me being homeless, and there's a whole story that I talked about on the previous journeys. But I think that practically what I was experiencing with this person and how they believed they were to rule over me was a very toxic interpretation of scripture, even, even from a lot of people say, well, this is person with an obvious mental health issue. But I think for me, what, what I saw when I was under that system was if we do believe in something like complementarianism, men have their roles, women have theirs, women submit to the man, that's the order of marriage. I, I looked at it in the same way that I would look at slavery. I would think here's a system where, hey, you might get a good master And might not be beaten as regularly. And so someone could say, see, slavery is not inherently evil because it's just the participators in it that make it evil. And I would have to say, no, I think the system that allows or that would in some way endorse this kind of abuse because of the structure of inequality that's inherently in it, that that structure is flawed. And so that began my own journey of thinking, I don't think that it's wives submit to your husbands. I don't think that there is this complementarianism. It didn't fit with who I was as a person. I mean, I was a whole rounded person, paid my own bills, did my own job, very educated, didn't didn't have even a patriarchal household that I came from. And so it was just so different to who I actually was coming into the church that I realized, like, to conform and to contort myself to fit into this box is too painful and it just, it's not right.
1: Your firsthand experience helped you to realize that this system or, or this relationship dynamic inevitably was not functional. And not because of who you were as a person, but because the roles and the boxes that you were put into didn't allow the freedom to actually exist the way that you knew to be.
0: And it gave kind of a, I think there are a lot of women in marital relationships that might want that kind of dynamic. They might want their male partner to lead and take on the decisions, and they might be very happy saying you got it. That might be a part of their personality. And there's nothing wrong with somebody organizing a marital relationship based off of that preference, but it wasn't mine. And so that's something that just, it it didn't work out for me. And there was an expectation that it was disobedience because I would not be this person and I would suffer ramifications and he would get violent because I wouldn't submit and I would have to sleep in my car as punishment. It's part of like, you know, at some point, The plan was to wear me down so that I would finally just do what he said. And I never got to that point. I'm a very stubborn person, so (laughs) I never got to that point, and I just ended up leaving at some point.
1: Well, I think what you're describing is something—it's two different things. Of course, there there are preferences, Mm -hmm. and I do think that there are two legitimate types of relationships, complementary relationships and— Uh, analogous or equal relationships but both have challenges to them
0: they both have to be chosen
1: well yes so that's a preference thing and that's a dynamic thing and of course but i think in this case it it wasn't just that it wasn't your preference is that there was an abuse of that structure
0: there was an abuse of that structure that was also endorsed by god you have the writings of Paul and wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You have these things that were said that is used as ammunition to say, this is the way of God. And that's where the religious abuse took place.
1: So this relationship ends and, and then you go to seminary? Is this where the deconstruction phase begins out of
0: Exactly. The the deconstruction phase has already begun. And I had really two choices in my mind. I can buy a van, travel the coast of California, be away from all people. Because at this point, I feel so hurt by my experience that I just don't want to be around anybody. And I just, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought, well, what's the harder thing to do to be alone or to be in community again? And I'm like, I think to be in community would be the harder thing to do And for whatever reason, maybe I thought it was the voice of God. Maybe I liked the challenge. I thought, well, I think community, as hard as it is, is probably the place that I would receive healing. And so in my mind, I thought, let me find out what the Bible really says. I think there was a part of me that always wanted to be an author and to write, but I wanted to do that responsibly. At this point in my life, theology had been drilled into me that you can't lead people astray. You have to know the right answers, and if you don't know the right answers, You're responsible for people not being saved. And so there was a heightened expectation upon myself to say, I need to find the answers. So drove across country, went to seminary, and began the journey of saying, I'm not going to be a pastor because that was too controversial. At that point in my mind, I didn't even think that women could be or would be allowed to be. So I just said, I'm just here to get knowledge, minister in my own way, but I was too. I didn't want to enter into a dogfight with anybody over that theological: should women be allowed to preach or not?
1: And so, while you are at seminary, what happens?
0: Do you have anything similar like that when you came to seminary? Did you come to seminary with those ideas of being a pastor, or how did Oh you no. no, 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 no.
1: Same. I I thought there was this crazy lady. In California, who was pastoring and who Mm -hmm. got ordained on some technical thing. And it was really controversial. Mm. And I, too, was, I'm not here to get ordained. I'm not here to become a pastor. How Um, dare I? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think I just wanted answers. But I wouldn't consider seminary the beginning of my deconstruction.
0: Where was the beginning of your deconstruction? After seminary. Oh, okay.
1: Well, actually, it was the summer Before my last semester at seminary, that actually began for me. And at seminary, I was a part of committees, and I was doing the whole ministry thing. And I came to my classes with a lot of curiosity and really wanting to learn from the best minds. Mm. Uh, And so I felt actually really fulfilled in what I learned, and I thought I was equipped to do exegetical work. Yeah. I felt competent. I finally was able to come home to my parents and have differentiating views that were sustained with good hermeneutics, right? Yeah. So I was able to hold my own. So I got out of seminary what I wanted, except except the personal questions that I came to seminary with, which— I will say some are trivial and some are... Jewelry? (laughs) Yes, jewelry was never addressed. (laughs) I don't think modesty was ever addressed. Mm. So that was very open up in the air. But then the bigger questions were also not addressed. Homosexuality.
0: Other than just it's wrong.
1: I cannot think of a time during my seminary experience... Where it was addressed directly.
0: Uh, I had several times where it was addressed directly.
1: I'll say with one exception. Mm -hmm. And it was because this student who had recently come out was going to come give a talk in the class and promote this kind of LGBTQ community that was celibate, of course. And <laughs> side
0: A or side? Side B.
1: Side B. Okay, yeah. yeah, side B. So, I mean, I didn't really track with that. I I thought, that doesn't give me new information. I did have one experience with a counselor at seminary
0: mm.
1: who had retired. And he told me to never tell my husband. That you were? That I, yeah, that I was gay. Hmm. He suggested that some things you tell and some things you don't. and that I make-
0: can't imagine marrying somebody and not telling them about my sexuality.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it was so interesting to me because I appreciated him so much. I mean, mm. I found him to be so therapeutic. But, of course, I was just so deep in the closet and so deep in my own shell and my own shame mm. that the fact that he showed warmth to me was enough for me to be grateful yeah. I'm sure it made us both feel good. I'm sure it made him feel I like. good. Oh, I gave
0: great advice. I yep. <laughs> gave great
1: advice. Uh, somebody who's really struggling I, I felt heard and yeah. loved. And then on the other hand, I felt heard yeah. and accepted. Yeah. And so I think. Win-win, everybody. Win-win, win-win yeah. everybody, except I had a big, huge hole in my heart. And mm. that conversation didn't take the shame away. It just drove me in deeper. Wow.
0: I appreciate you sharing that. As I kind of journeyed through seminary, I had spent so much time in theological study before I got to seminary that there were a lot of things that I was already up to speed on about what they were going to be teaching. But I did find a much more balanced position, especially on women in ministry. I think I took a class by somebody who really advocated. There is a biblical case for women pastors, and we looked at Junia and Phoebe and we looked at Paul's overarching statement of all are one in Christ Jesus, male and female, slave or free, that this isn't just a future heavenly fulfillment, but this is God's will on earth, and made these really great intelligent arguments that kind of gave me freedom to own my space to be there and own my right as a, as a person, as a woman, to be in these spaces. I already knew that I was capable intellectually of being present. But I didn't know if I was accepted because of people's different ideological bigotries. So I'm going through seminary, and I think when COVID hit, uh, I spent a whole year, 2020, we all spent 2020 to 2021 taking classes online, spending so much more time indoors. And it gave me permission to not have to put on airs, to begin to ask hard questions, and to also begin to wrestle with my own sexuality that at the time was coming to the surface a lot more.
1: Wow. Interesting.
0: That is for a later podcast. (laughs) But I can say that during this time when there was a lot of questioning about my sexuality and who I am it was one of the darkest periods of time I'd ever gone through and I had never I don't think I've ever been super suicidal I mean there have been times where I've been really sad and been like I don't want to exist anymore Mm -hmm. but I think that was probably the deepest hole that I've been into because I knew from what I'd learned in my own classes on sexuality that side B is as far as you could ever go You can identify as LGBTQ, but you could never actually get married. You couldn't be in a relationship with the same gender. And I just remember not contemplating suicide, but definitely wishing that I didn't exist because I didn't know where to go with my life at that point. I just spent three years at seminary. I had maybe another semester to go or less than that. And to feel like, what is my life at this point? And now not even to know if I was on the same side that God was on. I think I went through a a period of time where I had to say, okay, God, if this is how you think about homosexuality, that it's wrong, and that two people of the same gender cannot be together, then I literally pictured myself standing in front of him on Judgment Day with an opposite view. And to get to the point where you're willing to face God, usually I've always thought of God as somebody who's supporting me and that I'm on, I'm on the side of right, but to take that precarious step into the unknown and say, I'm standing on my own judgment. And, and if this is how you believe, I have my own belief that is different. And I think that's the first time that I've ever made a variation or a differentiation between myself and God and not, and not my own idea of God, because I don't know exactly what he thought, but in my mind, I said, "If this is how you think, I think differently," and that put me in a really scary place because I had to envision myself to say, "And if I'm wrong, I'm willing to take my own life into my own hands." And to say, whatever it is that happens to me after I die, not getting the afterlife, or as an SDA teaching, it is you're going to the lake of fire. <laughs> if that's what happens, then I'm willing to stand that." And I think that took. A lot.
1: Yeah, that's bonkers. Because I remember growing up, my parents always telling my little young self, at least if we're wrong in the end, then we lose nothing. But if we don't do what's right, we lose everything. Mm. And so for me, it was even the odds. What's this life in comparison to eternity?
0: It's better just to be celibate, closeted, and gay because at least then, for sure, you're making it.
1: You're making it. Yeah. Or you're, and you know, I think for me, it wasn't such a survival mechanism. I really did want to please God. Mm-hmm. it was It was about making God proud and making sure that God felt reciprocated. yeah and and I thought, a hundred years if I live them, are a small price to pay. It's a
0: small sacrifice. To be alone forever.
1: And I totally get it. I think. But then, but it's yeah. not a small price, actually. Yeah. It came at the cost of a lot. And it also came at the cost of a genuine relationship with God, which I thought I had, but I. But I really didn't now that I understand relationship and how relationships work.
0: It has to be reciprocal. I think even that moment of me standing in opposition to God was the moment that I became a person for him to have a relationship with.
1: Right, right. Because other other than that, you've just been this obedient,
0: submissive person. Yes. At that point, I wouldn't want a relationship with someone who just did everything that I said. And there, there are all these instances in the Bible where you see Jacob wrestling with God or Moses contending with God, and it, they're contending with God on an idea that he's better than what he's presented himself mm-hmm. or, or what they understand him to be. Yeah, And so I think I was taking on those challenges as saying, I believe you to be better than what the scriptures are pointing to, which is I believe you to be a lot more loving and inclusive and I'm challenging you on this. And so and and for me that looked like you say you are the truth, the light and the way,
1: I'm going to stand in my truth. I'm going to put myself out in the light. Yeah. I couldn't picture myself being in the darkness of my and in the shadows of my own secrets and my own shame and being able to have a relationship with God. Yeah. So I felt by stepping into the light even if it was there, was ugly. Even if I was ashamed of what I was showing, at least I was where that God this is could the meet truth. me. Exactly. This is the truth of who, who I am. I'm stepping out of the closet. I'm stepping into the light. Yeah. And this is where I'm supposed to meet you, anyway. So even if I turn out to be this ugly person, you don't want a relationship with. I, this is the only place I can have a relationship. In there, I'm I can't. I'm hiding that. away from where you think. are. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And I think so for me, but during that period of time, because it was so isolating, I would not recommend <laughs> that type of journey of deconstruction. When you were going through deconstruction, you were going through it with a group and through, with a cohort. Yeah. And you had a very guided process with somebody who challenged you for almost a whole year. Is that correct?
1: Well, I think it was at times five, four people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, it was for an entire year. And I would say that the benefit of that was that I could hear myself give out the arguments to people where it wouldn't land. Mm. When I would give them to myself, I have this whole history and this whole buy-in.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I would shut down the argument. Yeah. But when I had to verbalize it to a group of strangers who are not familiar with the SDA church or doctrines. Yep. It just, I could hear it. I could hear how it sounded. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me to play the role of defending the church while others were kind of prompting me to, to be myself yeah. and to love myself. And so I think it's much harder to be in the role of loving myself and being myself myself. When there's no persecutor, I just started to soften, and I just started to see myself with more maternal eyes. I think mm. I had always kind of had this very masculine, war, kind of energy, or a very tender God. But but to have a maternal lens towards my experience opened me up. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I can say that in my, the last part of my deconstruction journey where. I'm depressed, I'm gonna stand on my own, I don't know what the uncertainty is. There's a part of me that thought I could be a bridge because I was not happy with the injustices that I saw in the church and the way that the church treated the LGBTQ community. And I thought the way that I had ingratiated myself and integrated myself truly into this institution that I could help make room for this conversation. Even if at the time I wasn't gonna take a side other than disclose my own identity, I really thought that there was more room for discussion. And coming to the realization that there wasn't, again, was the last layer of the de- deconstruction, where it's at every point that I have tried to be myself, when be- me being a woman and having to cast off the yoke of misogyny that would keep me from being an equal. And then now to declare my own sexuality and to be judged for that is now a yoke I have to cast off as well. At some point, There was room for me in the church to be a woman who was also equal with men. There was enough theological defenses, enough people in power who would also make that argument. I could hide behind that and I can stay present. But there wasn't anybody who was standing up for the LGBTQ community academically and in those spaces. And that meant that I needed to leave entirely. And that last stage of deconstruction for me is what I think a lot of people are going through who are, who are going through their own process of coming out themselves, but they're doing it alone. And I can say that left me in a space where not only was I financially struggling, but just struggling to grasp new meaning for my life. And I'm still in that phase. My work has nothing to do with my degree directly, even though I can say there's some pr- parts of, a chaplaincy kind of mindset that I would bring to some of the work that I do. But it's not really, it's not really related. And so now trying to rebuild meaning and redefine value and redefine community, I mean, it's a whole lot of work and it's not easy. And so...
1: Well, because the
0: box isn't
1: manufactured.
0: I'm creating my own box. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yes. You're doing that on, on your own. And, and I think that was what was hard for me when, when I felt I could finally integrate all of who I was, not just parts of me, but all of who I was with a belief system that I had reached some sort of integrity, that I could feel free and mm. at peace Because I'll say this, there was a period when I was a teenager that I had really walked away. I was ready to give up being SDA. Mm. And I had moved in with my uncle. I was pursuing a law degree. I mean, I had adopted a more deistic view of God, Mm. and I was content with that. Mm. And so when I returned to the faith, for me, it was like, let's settle this once and for all. So I really did put my whole heart into wanting to conform yeah. and wanting to understand it. I didn't come in with this challenge mentality to seminary. Mm. I came with a student mentality. Teach it all to me. I'm going to absorb it. This is going to either push me all the way in or push me all the way out. And the reason I had come back was because I I had no peace. So anxiety really took over my life when I didn't have a God to turn to. Mm. Now, I can look back at that time and realize how much I operated out of this victim mentality and this codependency mentality and really not seeing God as a Savior in the present moment, but God as a Savior in a very historical sense and in a very future tense and that, that I was saved, but I had no autonomy or agency other than I turned to you. <laughs> That's yeah. the extent of my autonomy. So under that structure and under that kind of mentality, there was no way for me to access any kind of peace outside of that relationship anyway. Yeah. And that would be true even if it were a different benevolent God. Yeah. So what was different about the deconstruction the second time or the walk away the second time was that There was integrity. I was able to find God. I didn't feel disconnected, even though I felt disconnected from a belief system that had pressured me into just darkness.
0: Yeah. I think for me, understanding, one, how hard it is to deconstruct on your own. Also, the importance of being able to have that deconstruction happen in community, has made me like sympathetic for those that are still in the church. And that I can say at times I do feel in a very selfish way, I feel angry that, that my walkout was a singular walkout, that it wasn't an exodus of many people who saying, injustice, injustice, we're all leaving. Even though in some sense that happened, I think in the long term, I think it's too hard to leave community that's so central to who you are. And so central to you making meaning out of life, and so there's a part of me that has been judgmental, and not not intentionally, not purposely, not even in a mean way, but just in a in a selfish way, in a way that wants community.
1: Yeah, I think to question the integrity of the community that could see an injustice happen. How can you say it is safe for somebody to share about their sexuality so long as they don't act on it and then proceed to watch how the same institution that made it supposedly safe for you to share that information, cast you out and spit you out and say, nobody stand up and say, wait, 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 what's going on?
0: Yeah. And I see that as my personal journey and I know that it's hard and I wouldn't recommend it. And I think from that space of empathy, I say I wouldn't recommend it. I think some people don't have a choice. There are people who are LGBTQ who are making this exodus because they have to. There are parents of LGBTQ youth who are making this journey because they have to. The cognitive dissonance is so great, and the suffering in so many ways is also equally great. And people who don't have to, I don't think they will. And a part of me has to, in my own journey of understanding and empathy and forgiveness, is to understand that. You need community to deconstruct. And if there's ever going to be a mass exodus, it has to be people who are together in unity, kind of studying these things out, taking apart piece by piece. Because I I feel like the way that I have done it, as much as I've benefited from the process, and if you have to, I would recommend it. (laughs) But if you don't have to, there's a really high cost of entry that I would say, if you could do this in community, you'd be probably better off in the long run. A high cost to exit. A high cost to exit. Yes. <laughs> a high cost to x So, bottom line, deconstruction is hard, and spirituality is core to our identities. So as we're building bigger boxes for a bigger God, just a word of caution— to make sure you have the proper support systems in place. Even if it's just a single person who is going through that journey with you, it's gonna make all the difference. I am genuinely so proud of every one of you who is making the decision to challenge yourselves in areas that are hard. And I just want you to be safe. The darkness that can come with feeling isolated and even excommunicated from your community can take a heavy toll just be sure not to bear those burdens all by yourself. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Imago Gay as we explore our redefined series, Bigger Boxes for a Bigger God. If you're enjoying this content, please be sure to rate this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. If you want to follow our co-host today, spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle, you can do so on Instagram at Roxanne Marie and you can reach me at Kendra R. Snow with an X. Just as a reminder, this month is Kinship Awareness Month. And if you're on the journey of deconstruction, this is a place for LGBTQ Adventist, -Adventist, non-Adventist, ex-Adventist and other faith affiliates to find safe spaces and community in the LGBTQ world. So be sure to sign up and become a member at sdakinship.org. And I wanna give a big shout out to our sponsor this week, Spectrum Magazine at spectrummagazine.org because they are making safe spaces to bring challenging theological dialogues to the forefront. And they need your support to keep conversations like these going. This episode was edited and engineered by yours truly, and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.